The following recording may contain explicit language. I can't get more explicit than may. Let's just say it may. It's Friday, September 14th, 2018. From Slate, it's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. Vlad Putin the other day called upon the two Russian citizens, not at all GUR members, two Russian citizens who were named by the UK as suspects in the poisoning death of a British citizen in a nerve attack on a former Russian agent. He called upon those two guys to be interviewed because that's what you do as a responsible leader of a country. Point the finger at the accused and say, might as well do an interview. And wouldn't you know it, of all the outlets to take him up on this, it was RT, Russia Today, the former Russia Today. They've KFC'd their Russia Todayness. So talk in that interview turned, as it does, to Salisbury, the town in England where the high-profile poisonings went down. And the interviewer asked, Salisbury? Salisbury, a wonderful town? Yes. There's the famous Salisbury Cathedral, famous not only in Europe, but in the whole world. It's famous for its 123-meter spire. It's famous for its clock, the one of the first ever created in the world that's still working. Which inspired in me the question, what if Jack Ruby hadn't done to Lee Harvey Oswald what Jimmy Fallon did to Norm Macdonald the other day and canceled him? Could we have heard a Lee Harvey Oswald interview and have been treated to a spectacle like, why were you in the book depository? Oh, I am a great lover of books. Not so much books themselves as I am enthralled by their care and storage, stacked in piles, filed on shelves, If books are to be deposited in the Dallas-Fort Worth Metroplex, Lee Harvey is there. Why are you talking with a Russian accent? Oh, it is not because I killed Kennedy, I can tell you that. What is this interview for, anyway? Is this book TV? I love book TV. I love when you interview Doris Kearns Goodwin. I bet she stacks her books. She seems like a stacker. All right, that is Lee Harvey Oswald being interviewed outside of the confines of time, space, and taste. There are a couple really great details in that ridiculous RT interview. Mainly, there were the assertions of what nobody is talking about. At one point, one of the citizens... Bartishrov says there were no pictures, the media, television, nobody talks about the fact that the transport system was paralyzed that day. Then at another point, the two say this, Petrov, on March 4th we did, but again by lunchtime, there was heavy sleet. Bosharov, for some reason, nobody talks about this. That is a classic propaganda technique, talking about what nobody talks about. Nobody talks about that. I didn't do anything for Russia. I've done nothing for Russia. See? Now, there's an English government agency that vets and can pull the license of a news outlet that they find to be fake news, and the assassins turn tourists, sorry, the tourists who absolutely killed it, whatever you want to call these guys, they dug a pretty deep hole for RT, which was in a deep hole to begin with. But I say, no, Britain, no. Do not ban RT. That is exactly what they want. Who watches RT and believes it? But banning them will give the station, the country, a heightened sense of victimhood, which is exactly the desire of Putin and his murderous thugs. Sorry, his slush-covered day-trippers. On the show today, I use the spiel to take stock 
of the end of primary season. The Republicans got all Trumpy. Did the Democrats really go full Democratic Socialist? Which brings me to my guest today. She is the National Director of the Democratic Socialists of America. She is here to define terms and defy expectations. Or not. It just sounds like the kind of phrase that you say there. It's an interview with Maria Swart, spelled with a V, but pronounced Swart. One of the most surprising things about the Democratic Socialists of America is that there are Democratic Socialists in America. Well, we always <laughs> knew that. That was a little bit under the radar until they started winning, capitalizing on a mood of discontent and uh, quote-unquote populism, though that word could take many forms. Mm. Joining me now is Maria Swart. She is the National Director of the Democratic Socialists of America. Hello, Maria. How are you? Hello. I'm great. Okay, so let's go to 2011 or 2012. Give me, paint a picture of what, say, a DSA national meeting looks like, how many people show up, <laughs> what's the demo, who's involved. So let's just say that in 2015, mm -hmm. when we had our national convention and we had 125 people, we were thrilled. Yeah. DSA meetings um, were much smaller than they are now. New York City DSA has over 4,000 members, and they have hundreds of people come to general membership meetings. In 2011, we might get 20 people. Yeah. To come to how, many how many nationwide were in the DSA? At that right. point, about 5,000. So there are almost as many in New York City now as there were nationally. Correct. Really seven years ago. Ten times larger. Okay. Oh, and what were the demographics of those in it then, and how has it changed? Was it mostly white? Yes. It was majority baby boomers. Uh, I was part of a cohort of folks in the organization that during the aughts, we're organizing and doing activism in our campus wing, and we believed in the politics, so we worked to build bridges with the older generation and bring young people to stay involved after they were in high school and college, but it was definitely dominated by baby boomers, who, from whom we have a lot to learn, yeah. but it's a limited demographic. Do you find that you're converting mostly Democrats, or are you, whatever our concept of right and left is, are you reaching towards Republicans, and are they becoming socialists? Former Probably a handful of Republicans, Republicans, and certainly many Democrats are enraged, is the right word, <laughs> about the Democratic Party and, and the leadership of the Democratic Party, the Wall Street Democrats, and their, frankly, complete inability to stand up to Trump and unwillingness to do what it will take to win. But frankly, we're reaching out to people that aren't Democrats or Republicans. Like when when we organize, when we go out there to canvas for our candidates, when we talk about tenants' rights and landlords, we're actually deliberately trying to reach poor and working people. And many of them have stepped out of the political system because they don't feel that the Democrats are actually helping them. So it's not so much trying to go after the elusive middle or bring over the Republicans so much as the 46 percent of people who didn't vote in the last presidential election and are frustrated. Where does DSA differ with the Greens? So DSA um, it has one foot in the Democratic Party and one foot outside of the Democratic Party. Uh, we don't see ballot lines as a question of political purity. We see it as a question of strategy and tactics. And we know that the political system is rigged against anybody other than the Democrats and the Republicans. So rather than spinning our wheels, we're sort of experimenting. Uh, we have candidates running on the Green Party line and people running as Democrats, and they're all members of DSA. We are organizing people uh, and we're giving people the tools to analyze their local community and decide what's strategic about which ballot line to run on and how to build a organized base of politically aware people. 
to just be smart about it uh, rather than dogmatic. And I would say that's the primary difference between us and the Greens is that we are they are a political party and we are not a political party. And, and we're trying to build power both in the political system across different parties, but also outside the political system. So we have our Abolish ICE campaign. We have tenants organizing. We have the Medicare for All campaign. We have all this other work that we're doing, which will last well beyond the election cycle. Okay, now I'll ask you the question. Uh, Define what socialism is or what democratic socialism is. So we believe that people should have the ability to live a dignified life and that it's possible in the wealthiest country in the history of the world. And democratic socialism is the idea that We make the economy run, and so we should control it. We should control our workplaces. We should own and control our workplaces. Uh, We should actually have real democratic control over public investment decisions. Other aspects of our society should be run democratically. Who's the we in that? All of us. But does does that mean Avis, where the employees own it, or does that mean socialism, where the government owns workplaces? So the employees. The so the employees should own workplaces. Well, look, like a bicycle shop. I usually talk about a bakery. Let's talk about a bicycle shop. If we have a bicycle shop and we do all the work to maintain the bikes and work with customers, who's why the should, way? Who's the way? The workers. Okay. So why shouldn't we have a voice of uh, in how we manage things? So if we had a union, we might say, oh, we want to get you know you give you pay us about ten percent of what we produce. We want twenty percent or we want fifty percent. With socialism, we would say actually we should run the bike shop. We should own the bike shop. We do the work. We know how it works. We should be actually invested in it and control it. And we definitely, you know, when I talk about public investment, there are certain things that shouldn't be left to the market and do need to be democratically controlled. So, Nationalized. Right. So what are some so of those So right things? now, uh, the banks, for example. We bailed out the banks after a financial crash. Um, there was no accountability. We socialized. So you, be- so you don't believe that the banks just shouldn't be over leveraged or it's you don't just believe in the banks shouldn't be too big to fail. You don't believe the banks should be private, for-profit businesses? When the banks are too big to fail, they have control over the political system because they pay for the politicians. So inherently in the capitalist system, those with wealth and money will constantly try to erode the political system to weaponize it for their own interests and to rig everything. So we actually do think that things need to be democratically controlled. But to go back to our examples, if you own the bake shop, if I own the bike shop, right, Mike's Bikes, Maria's Muffins, we are individuals and we say we have this great idea and we start it and it goes pretty well and we have, we're our only employees and then we hire someone else and the profits rise and we're good to our employees. Like at what point are we allowed to stop or are we mandated that we stop owning our business? People are often don't know how to take democratic socialism because we don't actually believe we have a full blueprint. Uh-huh. Um, we believe that we need to make the road by walking. So we could talk about what does it look like today? What would we like to happen tomorrow or in five years? And the long-term vision is that we actually have true democratic control, but we can't we can't exactly articulate what that looks like because yeah. people have to decide and There are many economists who have thought about this. There are plenty of people that have written whole books on it that are members of DSA. But it all comes back down to this principle that we should control our labor and we should control the fruits of our labor because people do the work. Okay. People should own their workplaces. Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez or the other candidates who say – who are are members? Is she a member of your organization? Yes. Or say that these are the ideas they agree with. Those ideas, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez believes in the bike shop, bake shop model we've been talking about? Well, the thing about DSA is we're what we call a big tent organization. Mm -hmm. 
So we have some people that would be satisfied with Scandinavian social democracy. Are those the moderates within your organization? Yes. Okay. <laughs> and that's the idea that, you know, nobody should be starving in the streets, but we could have a mixed economy and that there's a way to tame capitalism. And then a lot of other folks in DSA would say, actually, if you look at the social democratic countries of the world and other countries that have experimented, the market continually undermines public provision and social democratic reforms. And that's because the nature of the capitalist system is that the drive for profit is not about individual people being greedy. It's about the fact that if you are a good employer and you are competing against an employer who is not, you know, doesn't really care about their workers, you inherently must start exploiting your workers to squeeze as much out of them so that you can reinvest because you're competing against somebody who doesn't have scruples. And it's the nature of the system that there needs to be constant profit that can be then reinvested and used to push into new markets. So the entire system is corrupt. That's our analysis. But we have people that are more moderate in the organization because they don't see any other alternative an organization out there that's really um, articulating this and engaging in political work that is independent and visionary. So that's a good point and a good question because there is one, there are a couple critiques of the democratic socialist idea and one from Democrats is when they hear a version of that, maybe the the more palatable version uh, phrased by a good politician like uh, Ocasio-Cortez, what they say is, well, how is that different from just what Democrats should be? What's your answer to that? The Democrats have shown that they can't be that? They don't want to be that? No, I think a lot of people in the Democratic Party actually have a, a much broader political vision than they've been forced into by this the system, which uh, the two parties have set up so that they can control the debate. Uh, it's what the capitalist class does, is try to control what the discussion is, what political possibility is. So I think that there are plenty of people that have this alternative vision, even though, you know, in schools and in the mainstream media and, and everywhere, it's not even that we're told that there's no alternative. It's just like this is the where that we breathe and and we are we are trained to believe that this is how things have to be. We have to constantly be in competition with each other. Everything is about competition and individualism and there is no sense of collective, there's no sense of community, there's no sense of shared destiny. And that's just the way the world is and that's human nature. And the vision, you know, when you talk about what the so-called American dream is, we can talk about, you know, how it's based on colonization and slavery, and it was never really intended to work for most people. But the reality is the American dream is that we all can live a dignified life. Like Alexandria has this really great quote that I've heard her say, which is that nobody should be too poor to live in the wealthiest country in the yeah, world. Yeah, that's what she right? said. That's what she said on Colbert. He said, define it. And she said, in the richest country in the world, nobody should be too poor to live. The value for me is that I believe that in a modern, moral, and wealthy society, no person in America should be too poor to live. That's what I think. And my problem with that, it seems like a good phrasing. It got a big round of applause is, well, who would object to that? I bet you... If you woke up Paul Ryan in the middle of the night, he'd actually sign on to that. Now, you and I would say, okay, but— I don't think he would. No, the Republicans really, are becoming more and more clear that they actually they, don't believe no, that people— No, he really <laughs> thinks that people have should— the right to, to People eat. think—he really thinks that people should not be so poor to live, and his solution for that are market solutions. He also would argue that people are—he doesn't think that people are too poor to live in America right now, and you probably disagree with that. But— 
I mean, that's such a it's so full of ambiguous phrases that I think your definition of what democratic socialism puts a little more meat on the bones than hers does. So why is she I mean, she's so charismatic and she's gotten a lot of attention. If she's articulating that version, which is a more moderate version of what you stand for, how good is that for you guys? It's incredibly important. It's like Bernie Sanders running for president and getting millions of votes. It but if this is what I talked about, how but if they this, are the most moderate versions of what you are, if they're not actually the exemplars of your philosophy, is that a problem? They are the most moderate version of what we as an organization think of as democratic socialism, but compared to the American political system, they are super far left. And one of the roles of democratic socialists is to pull the political debate back to where it needs to be because the Republicans and they've been aided and embedded by the Democrats over the years have pulled and pulled and pulled the debate to the far right to the point where even basic social democratic ideas were beyond the pale. And her confronting, much like Bernie Sanders, confronted this neoliberal capitalist consensus that the market was a solution to all problems is incredibly important. It shows that another world is possible. She speaks with a visionary language that resonates with millions of people in the same way that Bernie Sanders did. And that is um, in a country where we are, as I said, you know, fed along with mother's milk, this idea that endless competition with each other is the only way that we can live. Endless isolation from each other and loneliness is uh, the only, there is no alternative. Uh, That is incredibly important. Okay. Here's the thing. There's someone listening to this show who is probably a big fan of Bernie or Ocasio-Cortez. And one of the things they say is, A, that's what the Democratic Party should be, and that this person probably gets quite offended when they're painted with charges like, oh, Bernie wants to nationalize the means of production. Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez doesn't believe in private ownership. However, you're telling me the DSA means a whole lot of stuff way to the left, if you will, of that. What's the problem with that? That people who are backers of those two candidates either aren't on board or it would give them pause to know there is legitimacy in the criticism of those two candidates as being adherents of a philosophy that are way to the left of where their fans are or where even those two politicians are. But we really believe in people, and we actually believe that many people in this country are much more dissatisfied with the status quo than you might think from the way the mainstream media, even progressives, talk about it and liberals. And we are not concerned because I actually believe that most people know that something is terribly wrong. They know that we're going off the climate cliff. They know that there are a few winners and a whole lot of losers in our economy. And if if they are introduced to a set of political ideas that helps crystallize why this is happening, then that's fine. And that's actually a good thing. And that is the role of a socialist organization is to introduce ideas that have been squeezed out of the mainstream debate. When I was a college student, I became a member of DSA because I was a feminist activist. Um, I'm biracial. I'm a woman. Uh, My family struggled with money growing up, so I knew the world was not fair. I did not have understanding of why it was that way until I met socialists, and I was a feminist activist, and I went to an event about socialist feminism. Somebody explained how capitalism works, 
And that was like a, a light bulb went off in my head. And that's what we want. We want more people to understand who is running our economy. We want more people to understand what the answer is. And that's a mass movement of people standing up together across our differences. Uh, because the urban-rural divide, black-white-brown divide, all of these ways that we are divided against each other is a deliberate strategy. And uh, we need people to have a political consciousness. And um, we trust that as people begin to see these things, you know, people are smart and they're going to understand what's happening. Maria Swart is the national director of the Democratic Socialists of America. Thank you, Maria. Thank you. We're thrilled to announce Slate Day, a live podcast experience produced in conjunction with the Texas Tribune Festival. Join us and the GIST's fellow politically-minded shows, Political Gap Fest, Trumpcast, Amicus, and El Gap Fest. Attendees will experience their favorite political podcasts live and will have unique opportunities to mingle with the hosts and fellow fans during our cocktail party. And you'll also get to purchase exclusive merchandise at a Slate Day pop-up shop. Slate Day will take place at the Capitol Factory in downtown Austin, Texas on Saturday, September 29th in partnership with the Texas Tribune Festival. It's an intimate venue with limited seating. Get your tickets today. Go to slate.com slash live for tickets and info. And now the spiel. The primaries are over. All but Louisiana and their so-called jungle primary. So in states not under bizarre vestiges of Napoleonic law, the primaries are over. The results are in. We have some evidence. What have we learned? We have definitely learned that for Republican primary voters, the Trumpier, the better. But in Democratic circles, the idea seems to be the leftier, the better, even the more socialist, the better. But, you know, I see as much evidence contradicting that as confirming it. If the idea is that older, moderate male incumbents have to look out for younger, liberal, female upstarts, we saw a big contradiction of that in the New York governor's race. In New York, Cynthia Nixon was trounced by incumbent Andrew Cuomo. She did worse than Cuomo's last Democratic opponent, who was a first-time candidate, who wasn't even on Caroline in the let alone sex and the city. Why Nixon lost could be chalked up to a lot of things, campaigning style, specifics of the race. But of course, the opposite result was obtained by a celebrated upstart who was called out by Nixon herself in her concession speech. Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and Ayanna Presley were the two Democratic challengers who beat incumbents in New York, Joe Crowley, and in Massachusetts, Michael Capuano. Ocasio-Cortez and Presley, they're both liberal women of color, and Crowley and Capuano, uh, they have no color. Presley and Ocasio-Cortez have a lot in common, but maybe not as much as you've been led to believe. They're both young. Um, Ocasio-Cortez is 28. Presley is 44. Still vibrant, but it's no 28, I can tell you. I on my knees can tell you. Ocasio-Cortez never held office. Presley has been a member of Boston City Council for almost a decade. Ocasio-Cortez is a socialist, as you may have heard. Presley does not identify as socialist, which you probably didn't hear. And there were many, many candidates who were some or all of the following. Women, minorities, upstarts, socialists, and they lost. 
the media tends to just discount them as data points. So is the party trending more liberal? It is. It definitely is. Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, is she the embodiment of that trend? Actually, I think she embodies a deeper political truth, which is this. If you campaign hard and smart, you have a chance. And she matched her district better than the incumbent. There are more Latino and Asian people in New York's 14th than there are white people. That means a lot. It's not just about being newer and fresher and different. It's about reflecting the district. Take this one phrase in the concession speech of Cynthia Nixon. To all the queer people who reject the gender binary. So I, I don't, I don't play that to suggest that Democratic Party voters will punish those who do not believe in the gender binary. In fact, I think Democratic Party voters, especially in New York, probably think it's a plus. But. It won't win you an election. There is no congressional district where the voters identify that way. And to be clear, Cynthia Nixon identifies as a lesbian woman. Voters want a candidate who represents them in their identity, not just who represents them in their policies or their concerns. To wit, Cynthia Nixon lost to Andrew Cuomo in the very district that Ocasio-Cortez won. Why? Well, Again, I'm going to come back to the fact that Ocasio-Cortez was a very good campaigner with a good situation, which was really low turnout. And not only do I not blame her or not give her full credit for the low turnout, it's kind of a delicious bit of political jujitsu that she was able to take advantage of the low turnout because the low turnout was by design. The Democratic political machine wanted low turnout, believing it would help incumbents. Nuh-uh, not incumbents who don't run or even campaign. Again, credit to Ocasio-Cortez. But it Indulge me as I go through one of my favorite exercises in discounting the idea that this very talented young candidate who won 15,897 votes is the future of the Democratic Party. Every board member of the Springs, Texas school board got more votes than Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. The winner and runner-up for the race for mayor of Anchorage, Alaska, both got more votes than Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, the mayor of Richmond, Virginia, LeVar Stoney, got twice as many votes as Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. And I mentioned Richmond because it's the 100th biggest city in the U.S. And I looked at all the cities that have a direct race for mayor, and every one of those mayors got more than Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. I guess I'm saying this now because it's going to change in November. In the general, she'll definitely get more votes than the 15,000 that she got to win the primary. But the primary will put her in Congress. But it does, I think, all add add up to the conclusion that this one woman had a great race, but is far from the face or the future or the purpose of the Democratic Party. As Rick Wilson told me on the show, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and her politics map onto 17 possible districts across the United States. The more centrist Connor Lamb, his politics map onto hundreds of districts. Now, it is true that there are some Democratic socialists who won in smaller races. In a New York State Senate race, a fascinating candidate named Julia Salazar beat a machine-backed incumbent named Martin Dillon. 
Now, I presume her name is Julia Salazar because she lied about having graduated from college, about being Jewish, about being an immigrant, about having to work to make ends meet, and about the politics in her past. She was a Christian born in Miami with a trust fund who was an anti-abortion activist in college. She was arrested, but not charged, for stealing from the estranged wife of Mets first baseman Keith Hernandez. She and Keith Hernandez deny the affair, but who cares? She's going to Albany. That's great, isn't it? Nationally, it will be fascinating to see where the Democratic Party goes from here. Indications and their highest hopes will be that they go to D.C., take back the House, and then just fight it out from there. That's it for today's show that just was produced by Pierre Bienna May and Daniel Schrader. One claims to be the son of a preacher. The other claims to be the son of a Frenchman who's a devout atheist. Which is it, guys? This story's not adding up. TJ Raphael is Slate's senior producer of podcasts. She does not claim to have been born in Colombia with an O or to have graduated from Colombia with a U. She sometimes suggests that she was born in Togo and ordered a lot of food to go as an undergraduate, but even that doesn't check out. Steve Lichtai is executive producer of Slate Podcasts, which he does to make ends meet. The gist, we're denying that relationship with Mookie Wilson, though we would like you to know that when Mookie was emotionally unavailable, we would turn to Lenny Dykstra. Ah, Lenny Dykstra. Unlike the now-defeated Martin Dillon, he was pretty effective against lefties. Oomperu, depperu, dupperu, and thanks for listening.